there are randomized trials on looking at spinal manipulation, but no one knows how much manipulation we need to be using in those studies. So what is the optimal amount of care? And, you know, on top of that, not only optimal amount of care, but, you know, uh, difference what we call doses. So we call these dose response trials. You're listening to Turn Learning Into Practice, where we spread the word to a broad community of evidence-based healthcare providers focused on improving patient outcomes. Hello, Sharish Baller out here in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Nice sunny October day. Uh, Hope all are staying well and healthy. Today, I will be having a conversation with chiropractic research pioneer and now legend, Dr. Mitch Haas. Mitch, you were one of the first people I met at UWS. I don't know if you recall this, back in 1997. That's actually when uh, Nicole and I started chiropractic school. Even just before that, I met you, Lester Lamb, and Dave Peterson when I was touring the university, uh, even before I had decided to go to chiropractic school. And so you probably won't remember me because I was a peon in your life at that time. (laughs) I still might be a peon in your life now. I don't know. But anyways, you know, I got to know you quite well over my run at Western States of 18 years. And it became obvious to me, certainly over the past few years, that not many students or new graduates right now would have a clue who you are and how important your work has been to our profession. I obviously got to dig into your work a whole bunch when I was at the university and even as a student, but I just figured your, your work was so important to me as a chiropractor and then as an educator and then as an educator who was interested in research that I thought we'd just have a little conversation today so you can let people know who you are. Uh, and then maybe I'll ask you some questions, see where you are today. And thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Awesome. So I, I do remember this conversation way back when, at least parts of it, but it might be interesting to hear what or who was your inspiration for diving into chiropractic research, not necessarily the chiropractic profession, but chiropractic research. You know, basically I had graduated, you know, from Western States in the summer of uh, 1986. And I was um, working for a time you know, teaching some biomechanics and uh, working as an assistant in the adjusting labs. And one day the director of research came up to me and said, Mitch, you know, we want to write a grant proposal. We need a chiropractor and I can't get anybody else, but you come highly recommended. And she goes, she had a little money and, you know, like positive cash flow, a recent graduate. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, I, I worked with her. This was Joanne Neando. I worked with uh, her on the grant. And, you know, we hit it off and eventually they just uh, offered me, a, you know, a job as an assistant professor. Uh, I started off half in research, half in chiro sciences. 
eventually, uh, well, it was kind of like a car taking its half of the road out of the middle. You know, it's like everyone wanted wanted more. You know, they wanted all of me, so <laughs> at least a good part of me. So eventually, I ended up full time in research just a few months after I joined the faculty. So it seems almost fortuitous then that you uh, started a research career. Oh, exactly. So you you really had no kind of personal motivation to get into research. Uh, it was just by happenstance, a question came your way and away you went. Well, you know, I went into chiropractic with the idea that somebody like me probably should be on his own. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't think I want to work in the private sector. Education, uh, probably not, or the government. Chiropractic became very attractive. You know, I could help people, I could treat them, I could educate them and be in my own office. I had never considered a career in research, but one of the um, officials at NIH, when I was there uh, doing a special emphasis panel for reviewing grant proposals, I might have mentioned this story to him and he just laughed and he goes, Mitch, you know you didn't have any choice. You had to go into research. And I said, you know, you're really right. <laughs> so maybe you were born, you were born for doing research. Who knows? It's just that temperament, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I totally get it. So I obviously know a lot about your research, but it would be nice for you to maybe contextualize for those that, that don't know your research um, to maybe uh, if you wouldn't mind outlining some of the key questions, key research questions that you were trying to answer and why you thought those questions were important. You know, when I first started, I was asked to write a paper on reliability. So there was some data that had already been collected before I'd gotten there. So I started researching what reliability was. Then I started reading articles on reliability written in, you know, written up in the chiropractic literature just to see you know, how one would present this kind of data. And I started noticing that, gee, you know, there, I think there are a lot of mistakes here. I had a um, access to a statistician at OHSU and I would call him up and I go, you know, I think they should have done that. And they go, yeah, you're right. And then after a while, I started getting some confidence in this. I started you know, doing some little studies on um, reliability of our manipulation indicators. Kind of considered the first step, let's say, into determining the validity, the um, accuracy of, of these tests. And so I did a little of that, started doing some small randomized trials on this, which was a little different. Ultimately, the question is, is not how much we can agree because I came to the conclusion pretty quickly that, gee, there's evidence that manipulation is effective, you know, from randomized trials, but no two chiropractors seem to be able to agree on what they're going to adjust. So it kind of dawned on me that, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter so much. So I created what I call the, uh, the two uh, story house analogy. You know, we we're arguing on, can we agree which uh, light switch to flick, the one downstairs or the one upstairs. 
when it doesn't matter. Either one will turn the light on. At that point, you know, I said, well, reliability is interesting. Um, we can't really do validity studies because we have no gold standard for, you know, what is the required um, area of the spine that needs to be adjusted. So I said, what we can do is take a black box approach. And so I designed a randomized controlled trial on this where the idea was to determine the efficacy of you know, our manipulation indicators. So the question was this, if we um, used the test results, okay, the, uh, the uh, screening results from the chiropractors, would the um, pain relief be better than if we just randomly chose you know, a couple of segments to adjust. And we did this in such that, you know, everybody, it was a double blind study. Everybody received a, uh, a palpation exam. And then half the group were randomized to be adjusted based on the palpation exam and half were adjusted, uh, you know, were kind of matched. So by the end of the study, both treatment and control group got manipulated roughly the same number of times in, in the same place, roughly the same was, you know, based on the actual test results. And um, I think the pain score on a hundred point pain scale, the difference, the mean difference between the two groups was one point. <laughs> so basically kind of came to the conclusion that uh, we get our patients better in spite of our manipulation indicators. Now, that was just one study, and um, there's still a lot of work to do. It would be nice to know, you know, careful training and to where we can get people to agree with each other, you know, might actually lead to uh, better pain outcomes. But, you know, in the end, you have to have some way to determine where you're going to adjust. You can't just guess. Not particularly ethical. <laughs> As one of our colleagues um, said to me, you know, even if it just gives you the confidence to go in there and do it, um, that's a good thing. <laughs> and I have to agree. That was kind of where it ended with, you know, work on the manipulation indicators. It was the only what they called a phase three study, uh, not the kind of phase three studies we're talking about vaccination, but a phase three for looking at, um, at diagnostic tests. And um, other work that I wanted to do at that point in time, we needed to get grant money. And, um, you know, funders would say, yeah, that's interesting, but no, we're not going to fund that kind of a thing. <laughs> so um, I eventually started moving over to doing, you know, randomized controlled trials on, on uh, chiropractic care. And we had some grants from HRSA. Yeah, there was one uh, randomized trial um, with HRSA. We were looking at... Um, at uh, seniors, and we were looking at a, a program from Stanford uh, that um, was kind of like a, a peer group where you know, people would get together and discuss how they, they um, would address their, their care, you know, how would they figure it out and you know, give each, you know, people hints. So we did some work on that. And then I decided that you know, there was another very big important question. And this is what I spent, you know, a good major part of my career on. And that is, you know, you know, studies, there are randomized trials on looking at spinal manipulation. 
but no one knows how much manipulation we need to be using in those studies. So what is the optimal amount of care? And, you know, on top of that, not only optimal amount of care, but, you know, uh, difference what we call doses. So we call these dose response trials. And when I um, submitted my first grant proposal for this in a, you know, a large one, we I did some small studies from some of the little um, centers of excellence. I had some small grants. We used to do shoestring uh, randomized trials. But, they, but this gave us, gave us um, uh, preliminary data, which is required you know, at NIH to get a you know, a full, um, full size grant. When I first submitted the grant, I wanted to do it all. So what do we want to know? How many visits? How concentrated? Do, so do we do it, um, you know, a lot of visits in a short period of time? Do we stretch it out over a longer period of time? You know, things like that. So I had this three dimensional trial, many, many uh, uh, subjects and uh, the review came back you want to do what? <laughs> now, there's a lot of politics in science, and um, these weren't being reviewed by a lot of chiropractors, chiropractic researchers. There was probably one chiropractic researcher, you know, brought into the panel, and the rest are people who know nothing about us. And it's very interesting because once you get past research 101 and you hit reality, it's very clear that different types of research get done in slightly different ways. When you have people from a psychology background, uh, they're going, well, where are you mediating and moderating variables? That's not something we do in, in, in this kind of biomedical research. In fact, I would be criticized for, for that as, you know, over digging into, <laughs> into, the, uh, into the data. You know, it was a big learning curve, and I had to submit it three times before all of a sudden I got it. And along the way, it was, I think mean, it was amazing. Like I, I would say there is moderate quality research, meaning there was one really good randomized trial suggesting that manipulation has efficacy for treating low back pain or headaches. And, you know, a reviewer would come back at me and goes, well, if it's only moderate evidence, you know, we shouldn't be funding this. And I'm sitting there, you know, and even mentioning to you know, people at NIH, isn't order of things you start with dose response and then you take that information and you find the optimal dose, then you investigate that by comparing it to a placebo or comparing it to another kind of treatment. But anyway, we finally did get funded and uh, we got to do these large grants on um, dose response for low back pain and, and for headaches. So that's basically from starting with the little preliminary trials, that was about 20 years of my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for that story. There are a couple of things that come to mind for me as, you, as I'm listening to this, and I've heard this before, but it still strikes me for a couple of reasons. One is that for our audience, it would be really interesting for you to let them know how small your department was as you were generating what ended up being millions of dollars in NIH funding. So did, how many people did you work with on average to ask these important questions and get federal funding? Okay, usually for most of the time, they would be two researchers, faculty 
level researchers. And then we would have a research coordinator or later became known as a project manager. So we would have one of those, occasionally two, you know, for some studies. And then we would have what we would call patient coordinators. So we would have a few of those. Mostly a, a handful. The way I would put it is, is uh, I spent most of my career herding cats. And because when you think about it, you know, I supervised the handful of people in my department, but then I had to work with other faculty members who weren't in my chain of command. We had um, the wonderful field doctors. So we ran most of our um, research out of private clinics. And some of it also were included from, you know, um, Western States um, um, outpatient clinic. So we had to work with them. Then, of course, you, you had to manage the patients. Uh, the most important thing is, is compliance. So if you don't get compliance, the whole study is in question. And then you, of course, had to, um, you had to be accountable to the Institutional Review Board at the university, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which was an independent board that you helped put together with NIH. And you have your NIH program officer it's it's really amazing to me. I, I, I still kind of can't believe that you started this really important research career for our profession, I'm speaking, as a practicing chiropractor. Your research is really, really important, and I, I want to get to that. But I, I still can't believe that it started just serendipitously with you being asked by Joanne at the time to just, hey, come and join us. We need, we need a body. We need someone with a pulse. And here we are today. The other thing I think that's worth talking about is for me as a practicing chiropractor, why your dose response work is so important. So as I got more and more interested in, in reading chiropractic research and for the students out there and the chiropractors who might be listening to this, I think it's important to know a lot of comparative effectiveness research out there originally would actually still to this day would compare things like education or physical therapy, home exercise program to chiropractic to see which was better in helping low back pain patients or neck pain patients. And what drove me insane was that there was never a consistent dose of chiropractic in all of that research, and that still exists today. So in my opinion, the question you are asking about how much chiropractic over how much time would be effective would really form the baseline for effective comparative research for therapies for low back pain and neck pain. I really appreciate the work you've done. I'm just kind of curious, could you tell everyone what you found? I mean, it's kind of a cliffhanger. What did you find? How many visits over how long for low back pain and for headaches? Okay, and before I answer this, let me just uh, say one other thing about the size of you know, our team. Um, though it was very small at Western States, what we uh, managed to do for some of these studies, some of them were to partner with other uh, chiropractic colleges and, and actually other um, universities. But you know, for some of the you know for the last 
dose response we did for the headache one, uh, we were partnered with, with Minneapolis basically and the university, you know, the, uh, with the chiropractic college. And then eventually uh, uh, these people migrated over to the University of Minnesota. So Gert Brown for Granny Evans and, and team there. Of course, you, you run into another problem and that is cultural differences. We have this whole system of multi-site around Portland. So they, they had their, a research clinic that was built for them. All the patients came there, whereas basically we'd screen our patients at Western States and then send them out to different clinics for convenience. Again, you know, we want compliance. And somebody from Beaverton is not going to come all the way to the east side, Portland, during rush hour, <laughs> three times a week. So <laughs> you have to understand that. But anyway, so what did we find dose response? For the low back pain dose response. Well, first, you know, what did we look at? The study ended up being looking at chiropractic three times a week for six weeks. And the um, participants would receive, um, in one group, they would get 18 chiropractic treatments three times a week for six weeks. Another group would get 12 chiropractic treatments. So they would get um, chiropractic care twice a week. And then the other third visit you know, we wanted to control how much care, quote unquote, people received and it's how much um, time they had with the chiropractor. So the chiropractor on, on that third visit during the week would um, do a very, very light massage. So whereas a typical massage visit for um, low back pain might be an hour and, and have some vigorous massage, we do very, very light massage called a creepy massage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and the chiropractors would do that to, to match the time. So, you know, each visit might have been 10 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on the study. Part of it would be, let's say, a, a hot pack, just to loosen them up. And chiropractic would do their history, you know, during that first few minutes. Then they would be, um, you know, the actual chiropractic or massage care. In one of the studies, they actually even got a additional kinds of care light. And then the third, the third group, they would get, you know, one real chiropractic visit a week and some of this light massage, the other two visits. And then the fourth group would be all 18, three times a week of that light massage. I was concerned about this kind of thing because, you know, just 18 visits to a chiropractor, hands-on. I mean, we know hands-on has some kind of an effect. So the, the real treatment, I mean, the real research question here, I wanna be clear about that. Is there an effect of spinal manipulation on low back pain above and beyond uh, hands-on? You know, we had good news and bad news. The bad news was, is that all groups got better. You know, we had, you know, anecdotes, you know, the the, the docs would tell me, Mitch, I have this patient that thinks this light massage that I'm doing, you know, for five minutes, just touching the patient is the best treatment they ever had in their life for anything. <laughs> That's going to happen. But we're ru ru ruling out the non-specific effects here. The good news is above and beyond that, there certainly was an effect. Uh, there was a dose response relationship. So to some degree, the more you 
received, the more visits, the better your results. Now in the low back pain, you know, the best was the 12 visits, two, two visits a week for. So two visits a week for six weeks. Right, two, two, the two visits of uh, manipulation and one visit of the very light massage. The um, 18 visits for the three week of manipulation, it was actually um, plateauing. And so it was almost the same, a little bit less, uh, not much less, but, but anyway, it, it turns out that, you know, the most efficient that we had would have been the three week for six weeks. I will, I will tell you here, Mitch, as a practicing chiropractor, and also actually one of the participating chiropractors in your study, uh, studies actually for both neck and low back pain, I was waiting with bated breath for the results because for me, I, I was hoping for the good news that manipulation was actually shown to be reasonably effective, at least clinically um, effective, maybe at least statistically. <laughs> but I, I was also anxious for the bad news. And to me, that also points to some of the work that you and others have done. Clinical researchers are brave in asking questions the answers to which they're not scared of. I think it's <laughs> I think it's really important for our field in particular to continue to ask the difficult questions, ask the important questions, and actually be okay with the bad news. It doesn't mean that once you get the bad news, that means just throw everything out at this given moment. You just got to hope for subsequent research to maybe change um, your perceptions, your beliefs. And so I was, I was obviously relieved, but above and beyond that, just the zeitgeist of you researchers being willing to ask difficult questions and living with the results to me was, um, was an act of bravery. I really appreciated that. I just want to also mention too, I was a little anxious as well from the insurance side of things. I was, uh, as you know, results of a trial or results of uh, research can be used advantageously depending on your perspective. And so we practicing chiropractors would be a little nervous if an insurance company got your results and said, oh, okay, that's all we're gonna reimburse a patient for would be X number of chiropractic visits over X number of weeks for low back pain patients or for headache patients. It turned out that that kind of happened, but it, it didn't. Your, your work also has implications on reimbursement. This is why I think it's really, really important for people to know about uh, your dose response stuff, because it has implications for the everyday practicing manual therapist who uses mobilization manipulation to treat their patients with low back pain or neck pain. And let me also mention that for the, uh, the cervicogenic headache study, it was actually the 18 visits that was best. The so-called bad news, there wasn't a huge gradient. What you would like to see is that six visits is a lot better than, not, you know, six manipulation sessions is better than no manipulation sessions. 12 is a lot better than six or 18 something or it, it, it plateaus and, you know, let's say 12 were best. We couldn't get a huge gradient there. I think the reason for this again goes back to the problem that we had to have that light massage 
control in there. So there is some effect of that. And then of course, all the non-specific effects. Ideally, it would have been nice to have a design where you just came in for zero, six visits, 12 or 18 visits for manipulation over those six weeks. Criticism of that is that, uh, well then more is better. That's what you would get at a review group. So, you know, it's, you have to manipulate your grant proposal <laughs> to be fundable. And it's not always the best clinical research question, something that you, you know, would want to, to know about in practice. Now, when, part of it, when we designed getting back to the insurance, is that you, uh, we were told you basically want to have none, kind of like a super control group. You want to uh, have a, a, an amount that is going to be reasonable to insurance companies, or at least what they think is reasonable, you know, a priori. And so, which we consider to be six visits. And then you want to go above and beyond to see, try and find out, you know, what, you know, the optimal dose is before it plateaus or even starts getting worse <laughs> uh, over treating the, you know, the patient. So that's why we went up to 18. For pragmatic, you know, re, you know, looking at aspects of dose response, it would be more probably interesting to the practicing chiropractor. It's probably something you've probably thought of. Is like in this randomized trial we did, everybody had to get their assigned number of visits. Well, what if they're better already? So when we were training the docs, you probably remember this, find something to adjust. It meets the criterions of adjustable, even if they're pain-free now, you want to keep doing this. Part of the thing we want to know is, is does this number of visits matter above and beyond where you might have wanted to stop? So no one knows, right? Let's say, oh, after six visits, they have no pain. Well, they don't have any pain now, but remember, we're following them up three, six, nine, and 12 months. And we do know that chiropractic patients are up and down. <laughs> You know, you, you didn't want to just stop. But now that we know that dose-response relationship where they had to go, I'd like to do or would have liked to have done <laughs> a, a trial where people were, uh, the patients were randomized to get discretionary number of visits. The treating chiropractor chooses and then compare that to where they were given specific number of doses that uh, might be more or less than what the chiropractor wanted to do just wouldn't be fundable <laughs> nih basically said yeah we, we got the point now with those responses <laughs> so <laughs> so that that would be very interesting and and mm -hmm. certainly the pragmatic aspect of that would would be wonderful for us practicing chiropractors but as we know we don't have the answers to much of the questions uh, we have us researchers uh, do have uh, the practicing chiropractor in mind. What is gonna be best for chiropractic care? What optimizes care for the patients? You know, in research, you have to start work your way up to that. Of course, you know, sometimes you, you can get there and sometimes, you know, you have to move on to other things. We're all about trying to improve patient outcomes using the best available research that's out there. And again, that's why we're talking today. Mitch, I wanna to pivot to just one other area of your life that made an impact on me too. And you've long been involved in the American Public Health Association and the Oregon Public Health Association. 
Can I ask what motivated you to join those organizations? Importantly, why do you think it's important for students in chiropractic school and ultimately practicing chiropractors to join these organizations? My motivation was much like the motivation I had for becoming a researcher. I was asked to help shore up, you know, to do a presentation at APHA, the, the school decided they, they'd send me. The goal was to shore up a, a section of APHA, professional section that chiropractors tended to be a membership of. And this was the radiological health session. So the section was made up of uh, radiation physicists and chiropractors. We also had a special interest group we wanted to work with, which was chiropractors. And we got there, a friend of mine said, well, you know, I'll be chair. I want to be chair next year. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll run for secretary. Now running in those small groups, meaning, oh, thanks for volunteering, right? But anyway, so the next thing you know, I'm there. So in my first meeting, basically, I got elected to secretary of our special interest group. The chair in the middle, you know, toward the latter part of the year, um, he uh, went home to a foreign country and all of a sudden I'm the acting chair. And then the powers that be in our, in our special interest group <laughs> said, you know, we need to become a section, a full section on ourselves. I go, remind me what that is again. And the next thing you know, I'm leading, I, I got uh, reelected. So, you know, I think there was um, six eligible voters that following year, and I, I, I won four to two or something like that. I had more friends than the person who ran against me. And the next thing you know, we're putting in an application together. I had to go in front of the governing council that following year, this was 1995, and make a motion and, and defend our application in front of 200 healthcare professionals. And we became a section. The next thing you know, uh, the head of, uh, of section affairs said, Mitch, I want you to run for the intersectional council's steering committee. She explained this to me and I said, well, nobody knows who I am. She said, we need somebody to run. I said, look, no one knows who I am. I probably won't get elected. And you need ballot filler, I'll do it for you. You know, as a favor to you, because you know, you, you help us out so much by when you're becoming a section. No one knew who I was, and I won. <laughs> I, I actually ran again later, a few years later, and I did win again. People did know who I was, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I, you know, I became <clears throat> secretary there, and then I became the chair of the intersectional council. I had 20 professional sections, so there I'm sitting up in front of medical care and oral health, you know, public health nursing. You know, what's this chiropractor doing up here? <laughs> Somebody made a motion at the governing council that year, which I had no knowledge of, to make the chair of the intersectional council and then the head of the council of affiliates to be members of the executive board. So the next thing you know, out of nowhere, I'm sitting on the executive board of the American Public Health Association for a year. I have held some kind of role uh, ever since I've been the only chiropractor now who's ever been on the executive board, the only chiropractor ever to be the president of a state affiliate, and on and on. Well, that's just an introduction to say, yeah, somebody can do it. 
even someone who started out knowing no more about public health than having read a few articles in the American Public Health Association, the Journal of the American Public Health Association. Back to your original question. Well, I just want to say, um, even that roadmap to your involvement in the APHA is interesting in that, again, for those out there that are interested in getting involved with their your local public health association or your national public health association sometimes it just takes showing up you know and just oh, actually amazing. signing up and before you know it you could be climbing the ranks in your local public health association as we know again as field doctors it's really important to understand your role as chiropractors in the larger public health domain of wherever it is that you're practicing. I mean, we, we come across a lot of people, we, we treat a lot of important conditions that have significant impacts locally, nationally, globally, just look at low back pain alone. We should be at the table when people are making decisions as it relates to public health, specific to spine care uh, and even beyond, but specifically spine care, I would say we need to be at the table. So that actually is good news. Again, I'm also interested in other than my perception of why it's important to join these organizations, in your opinion, from the inside of these organizations, why is it important for people to join the APHA and your your local, well, Part in the United health. States? Yeah, exactly. And then certainly the, the public health organizations in Canada and the rest of the world. There are, there's a bunch of good reasons. One is philosophical. We're holistic healthcare providers, which includes the social and physical environment. And this is basically public health. This is what public health takes care of. There's political reasons we want to be there. Remember that American Public Health uh, Association in particular is very much in favor of universal health care. And we need to be at that table because remember, you know, one of the uh, possibilities that people are floating are, you know, modeling it on Medicare, Medicare for all. Great, great, but here I am retired and I want to go to a chiropractor for something other than back pain. I can't do that. You know, I've forgotten, gee, we're not there yet. And so we, we have to make sure it's any qualified provider. So a credentialed provider needs to be covered by whatever health care system that, um, that uh, we manage to, you know, to implement. So that's also important. Another thing is locally, we're part of the safety net. So we want to be more involved with that. And then it's a great place professionally to meet people in other fields. When you're involved in research, you're involved with people in all kinds of professions. When you're involved in public health, you're even involved in a broader range of professions. We need to say, hey, we're here. And we are an important integral part of the healthcare system. As I say, you know, I, I still to this day, mostly students, you know, I, I walk around the poster sessions 
they see my little badge at OPHA of chiropractor goes, what does chiropractic have to do with public health? <laughs> <laughs> and, oh my God, you know, I say, well, you know that uh, we basically treat the number one cause in the world for, you know, years lost of, you know, healthy, healthy life. Oh, <laughs> and we could basically be involved in just about anything. There has been uh, a chiropractor who was the president of a county health department somewhere in, in the rural south, southeast. I don't remember who he was or what state he was uh, he was, he was in there, but you know, th this should be something we should be looking forward to. Chiropractors should be in the uniformed uh, public health service. Okay, now I'm not saying that you're gonna see a chiropractor be the Surgeon General in my lifetime, but it might. And it should be people walking around at the American Public Health Association meeting in their uniforms with four stripes on their shoulders. <laughs> Captain so-and-so, Captain DC. These are all incredibly compelling reasons um, for people to get involved with their local and national public health organizations. Um, just for those listening, you can go to APHA.org for information to sign up for the chiropractic section of the APHA. This is in the United States, and, and I'm not sure what the Canadian public health organization is, but please do investigate that. And for those locally here in Oregon, that might be listening, you can go to OregonPublicHealth.org mm -hmm. to actually become a member of the chiropractic section locally. And, you know, you're going to have to, for those out there, find your local public health organization and sign up. I'm motivated in so many ways as a practicing chiropractor, just hearing you talk about why people should be involved. Um, I will say, in my experience, having been involved in those organizations, specifically the local organization, you mentioned the networking. I can't even tell you how many referrals I've actually had, but we end up co-managing these, these medical physicians and I met a physiatrist um, at OPHA one time, and, and we co-manage and co-treat patients all the time. It was a cool opportunity. You know, there are a lot of ways that chiropractors, you know, seek out referral networks, and they'll go to their little local chapter of some networking thing that might be a little bit hokey, in my opinion, kind of a kumbaya business marketing type of thing. But uh, why not take it to a much higher level and just join your public health association locally and voila, you're now mixing in with like-minded healthcare providers. I just, I just want to ask you one last question, if that's okay. Well, actually, two questions. Do you have any advice for a budding researcher or someone, whether a student or a practicing field doctor, to get involved in research? Like, how would they? Great question. I think there are two paths. First, let me say the path I took is probably antiquated. There was somebody said, hey, why don't you come on and do some research? And I, you know, I just happened to have, you know, some skills with that. But now, if you want to be a researcher, I mean, as a career, you need to go in and get advanced degrees in research. There's nothing like, you know, uh, 
at least some kind of master's degree in clinical research, but preferably a PhD. During that path, you're mentored and you also will, you'll learn how to write grant proposals. As you start doing your early work, your mentor and other collaborators will be on there to support you and to give you credibility. So like when Joanne and I first submitted that grant, we never talked about it. We were way out of our league. It was a great idea, but uh, we were asking for things that were basically impossible. You know, like 14,000 subjects, <laughs> which we could never have done in three years. But, you know, part of the thing was, is, you know, I was gonna do the analysis on that since I had uh, learning how to do statistical analysis. And they and the reviewer said, you know, Mitch can't be doing that. Dr. Haas uh, should not be doing that. He's not a statistician. And then we we learned, you know, from talking to people uh, that, yeah, Mitch can do it, but you've got to have a statistician on the grant who would supervise that, a real, you know, PhD level statistician. And never again did we not have a PhD level statistician. Well, I shouldn't say that. We actually had master's level uh, on some of them who were basically uh, just as good as any PhD statistician I ever met, but, you know, professional statisticians. So you want to take a path where, you know, you're going to develop skills. You're going to um, have give confidence to funders, you know, uh, you know, to, um, you know, build up your, your resume and then uh, lead you to being an independent researcher. The other way, is to participate in research studies. When we do research, particularly when we want to make it, you know, not the efficacy of a highly controlled laboratory style study, but we want to know in the real world, does this work? Well, we need real world chiropractors. You're a real world chiropractor. <laughs> so um, that's, that's a, a great way, uh, you know, to get involved. That's awesome. Now, to me, it's a testament uh, to the growth of the research base in our profession over the years that gone are the days where it's someone just randomly walking into an office or making a phone call and saying, hey, I need a warm body and you happen to be the closest person, tag your it, and off you go into a research career. But now what you're suggesting, and that I think it appears to be true, is that now you need higher degrees higher level of training and that again is really a testament to the growth of the research base over the years and we you and i both i mean thanks to you i've gotten to know a lot of the researchers in our profession um, you got me interested in research i'm blown away by the work that people are doing now in our profession in the professional physical therapy manual therapy and trying to trying to improve patient outcomes and I will say the training I had under you through that master's in clinical research at OHSU was really, really eye-opening in terms of how important it is to find mentors uh, to help you kind of navigate what I think is a really exciting but bumpy, potentially bumpy road to becoming a, a clinical researcher. I will say I really love just being a participating chiropractor as well in research studies. To me, it feels like uh, we're doing something for a higher cause, um, helping our profession. 
again, trying to find answers to difficult questions. I really, really appreciated your time this morning, Mitch. It, it, time flies. I, this, take, this totally takes me back to when I would sit in your office and uh, just across the hall at Western States, and we'd have these conversations about this, that, or the other. But I really appreciate you taking the time uh, this morning to let kind of remind me of our history and research, um, but also just to let people know that you are one of the pioneers of research in our profession. And I think it's important for people to know your path and the questions you're asking and how important they are today and moving forward. Hopefully you can pass the torch to someone as you uh, ride off in the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again, Mitch. I appreciate your time. We'll catch up one way or the other, hopefully face to face. Well, it's been a pleasure and thanks so much for having me.